Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. Trey, you are dressed for this episode. You have your new order t-shirt on. I sure did. That's actually one of my favorite bands. Okay, so today's episode, we're going to be talking about the 1987 compilation album, Substance, by New Order. Now, this one's a little bit unusual. We don't normally do compilation albums, Trey. You and me, we kind of have made it a policy to avoid that. However, I think that there's enough on this album that is like significant culturally that I think we decided to make an exception. Well, it was such a big record, too. I mean, it was it just it put them on the map for sure. Yeah. And, you know, they 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 weren't promoting it as a singles collection or a best of or anything it was you know i was looking at some of the ads and it would say the new album from new order and i was like that's interesting this was album was really my full introduction to them too shell shock was on the pretty and pink soundtrack i i, I may have heard brotherhood before i i can't remember specifically that's one thing i've distant foggy memory there well, like you, I think this was the first album that I heard by them. And for many American audiences, I think this was our introduction to New Order. So it came out in 1987, and I didn't discover it until 1988. Now, I have a little bit of a story with this. I don't know if this is going to stay in the episode tray. Uh, you shared with us last episode when we talked about The Cure, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. You shared with us some very personal stories the little, about the lovely day in july of 87 yes yes being deflowered to uh kiss me kiss me kiss me well my story's personal too but it's maybe uh um not as happy a memory as yours so in the fall of 88 i was hospitalized uh for about three months and this is kind of like the the girl interrupted kind of hospitalization if you know what i mean I think you told me about this once, didn't you? I think I did. I think I did. So I was really kind of, most of fall of 88, very isolated, you know, cut off from most of my peer group, except for the other people that were on the unit with me. And one of our sources of solace, I guess, was music. That was one of the things we were allowed. We were allowed yeah. to have have music. We were allowed to have a tape player. And my roommate, Patty, is the one that introduced me to this album. And, I mean, I just threw myself into it headfirst, and it really got me through a very, very hard time of my life. So even though that's probably what you would consider an unpleasant memory, 
this this album is really important to me personally. It, it really got me through a lot. So I'm really happy that we're going to be talking about this. Well, you know, for me, like a guy that has two or three albums we've talked about, it's just such a, reminds me of such a fun time in my life. And it's another one that we played endlessly. Yeah. Over and over, you know. You know, I think one of our goals, Trey, with this podcast is, yes, we're sharing our stories and how we relate to the music, but we're hoping that our listeners feel something similar, you know? That's the thing about music is that it's the one thing that unites everybody and connects us. And obviously nobody else has my personal story or your personal story, but everybody who was around at the time who heard this music probably has some kind of memory, whether it's watching a John Hughes film or being at a school dance or, you know, music is the thread, I think, that kind of runs through our entire lives. So... That's why I'm really, really excited about this particular album. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I remember seeing the True Faith video in 120 minutes there about the tailwind of July, beginning of August 87. And going, this, this is great. And within a week, I, I got the two pack cassette. There was a limited issue. Yeah, there was not a lot of people know that. There was a two tape version, and the second cassette had all the B sides, like the CD. Most people don't know that existed. I didn't know that existed. That's cool. So let's talk a little bit about New Order. New Order is the phoenix that rose from the ashes of Joy Division. Joy Division, Manchester, England band uh, with Ian Curtis, Bernard Sumner, Peter Hook, Stephen Morris. Huge, influential, punk, post-punk band. And in 1980, their singer Ian Curtis took his own life. Joy Division very bravely decided to saunter on, and they rebranded themselves as New Order. Now, originally, it was just the trio of Bernard Sumner, Peter Hook, and Stephen Morris. But then eventually, they brought on Stephen Morris's partner, Jillian Gilbert. I know stuff on the internet says definitely she was actually in Joy Division at the tail end. Was she really? See, I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Yes. The the beginning of New Order, she wasn't technically considered a member, but she was there. Okay. Well, fantastic. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. And, and what we'll see here as we kind of go through this album, Substance is kind of a chronology of the band's evolution from 1980, from the death of Ian Curtis, to 1987, which was for the date of this release, this was present time. Now, this was released through Factory Records, and I think we're going to talk about Factory Records again in a couple months, because I'm hoping we can do an episode about Madchester. Factory Records was an indie label that was run by Tony Wilson in Manchester, and this was Factory Records catalog number FAC 200. Now, that's not to say that this was the 200th album that was released on Factory Records, because Factory Records had a habit of assigning catalog numbers to everything. Posters, artwork, done by, why can't I think, uh, Peter Seville? Isn't that the guy's name? Yes, you got it, you got it, you got it. I was bringing that up. Okay, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but like the posters... 
the Hacienda nightclub that they opened was Pack 51. And Trey, they even gave a catalog number to a cat. Yep. In fact, 191 was the cat that they kept at the Hacienda to keep the rats away. It kind of shows, I think, a little bit that they really take themselves terribly seriously as that label. Anything you want to add? You know, there's one more interesting little fun fact about this album. This is one of the first albums to be released on VAT. Oh, that's right. Digital audio tape. And I remember at the time they were saying this was the big thing that was going to completely replace audio cassettes. I mean, there was even a store here in the Chicago area called Discs and Dats. Wow. But it never really caught on. It never caught on the way they said it was going to. I need somebody that had one. And I mean, it sure did sound better than a cassette, but I, you know. I don't see the point of paying a thousand dollars for a machine and then sixty dollars for a copy of an album that you could get for nine ninety-eight. You know, a lot of these bands we like, such as Depeche Mode, New Water, played the tapes live. So they started using DAT machines. You can still buy the blanks. They still make them because a lot of bands still do that. Maybe I should rephrase. They never really took off with consumers. Right, right. Yeah. A lot of reasons the band still use the DATs is because if the power goes or something, the DAT is right where they left it. It's easy to cue it back up at the start of the song. The laptop goes with everything on it, you're fucked. Because you have to read oh. all that stuff. But you can just turn around and hit play on the DAT machine and keep right going. See, I didn't know that. Wow. And I know everybody's thinking I'm going to name the synthesizers on the songs on this one. The truth is, with this band, I can't because their New Order is known for their ridiculous collection of synthesizers. What they used, where, and when is up in the air. There's no telling. Well, I was up pretty late last night doing research for this episode, and one of the books that I found actually pretty reliable. It's called Shadow Players, The Rise and Fall of Factory Records by James Nice. That author has mentioned some very specific synthesizer technology. I trust that source, but I get what you're saying. Well, there, there are certain ones. I believe this was for sure that. Stephen Morris was using Trigger. So was Peter Hook. There's no telling what all they, you know. And then DATs come out, so they got all that shit going. Yes. Every synthesizer company on the planet would send them pieces of their new gear because that new, you know, new order would get it out there for our... Yeah. All right, shall we start? Let's go. Okay. Oh, oh, hold on. Mm-hmm. I lost my place, audience. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Up first, we have track one, which is Ceremony, and it's actually a reworking...
this was actually one of the last songs that was written by Joy Division just a few weeks before Ian Curtis died. Right, right, right. Actually, on May 2nd, 1980, when Joy Division played their final show with Ian Curtis, they premiered this song. This They opened with this song and audiences had never heard it before. Now, unfortunately, he was dead just a few weeks later. So New Order then kind of decided to take this song and make this their new beginning. And they released it twice. I'm a bit confused here, Lori. Was this version recorded for this album? Okay, so it was recorded first in January of 81 with Martin Hannett as the producer. And that was just Bernard, Peter, and Stephen. But then, once they brought Jillian into the band, they recorded it again and released it as a single in September of 81. So I think... I don't know for a fact, but I think what we're hearing here on the album is the re-recorded version with Jillian from September of 81. I don't think they would have included a song without her on it at this point in their career because she was such a big part of the band. Right. Man, I love this song. It's a great song. Oh, you know, it's such a beautiful opening line. This is why events unnerve me. And... I always think of Ian Curtis when I hear that. You know, everything that the man went through. You know, interestingly, for a New Order song, did you notice there's no keyboards? Okay. I mean, yes, I had. I don't know if I said that. I'm sorry. I was. I got lost in my thoughts for those of you that can't see me. Yes, I, I have noticed that before. Okay. That first album, there's keyboards on it, but I think it's just simply because they didn't really have a whole lot of money yet. I know Jillian was already heavy into them and had some gear, but, you know. Great way to start off the album, though. I uh-huh. I love this song. And, you know, it doesn't really sound dated to me. Some of the songs on this album do sound a little bit dated. This one is aged really well. So next up we have Everything's Gone Green. love this one and this is another one there's a couple of two or three versions of this one running around out there yes so, you know i didn't know that yeah you know it's funny i think this is probably my least favorite track on the album really yeah this track was produced by martin hannett and this was one of his last collaborations with the band because they were really butting heads you know why they really didn't get along with them not yet drugs and he was a rap a roaring drunk too Apparently, nobody liked him. I don't, you know, nobody, I've never heard anybody say anything good about him. He, he did good work, but they, him as a person, like, he just, uh, uh, never again. 
I was going to say he was just an absolute genius as far as production. And, you know, his work with Joy Division was just absolutely legendary. And I think he went on to do... Um, my Bloody uh, Valentine. Did he produce Happy Mondays? Oh, he did My Bloody Valentine? Okay. Yeah. Um, he did Pills, Thrills, and Belly Aches, I believe. Uh-huh. That was one of the last things he did because he died in 91. So personality aside... He's just an amazing producer. And to this day, <laughs> you just mentioned the name Martin Haddett in music circles and everybody's, you know, oh my God, he's amazing. I think he might've worked with the Mary Chain too. Oh, that may be, that may be. So this one, Trey, actually started off as a Giorgio Moroder inspired techno riff. I can see that. That sequence, uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. And... Bernard just kind of improvised the lyrics. And according to Bernard Sumner, this is probably the first New Order song that used any kind of electronics. He said he found an old oscillator and he wanted to sync it up with the drums, but the problem was that it would drop out of time after about eight beats. I wonder how they rectified that. Probably just taped it on a tape and then looped it. But yeah, in that, in that day and age. Well, and they did do a lot of that. <laughs> Uh, on this album. Something that I think I've commented on in previous episodes, Trey, is New Order was very much in the habit of picking random song titles that didn't actually have anything to do with the content of the song. A lot of their lyrics don't make a damn lick of sense either. <laughs> but the the title, Everything's Gone Green, do you know where that came from? Enlighten us. Okay, well, yeah, I'm so glad you used the word enlighten. <laughs> Uh, according to Stephen Morris, the song's title came to him in the studio after a few hours of recording the synth and drum tracks. The sunlight was streaming into the room and it was reflecting just right and it gave everything kind of an aquamarine colored glow. And so Stephen just blurted out, everything's gone green. Now, there were some substances involved. I was going to say, were they tripping on acid? And, and I seem to remember reading that there was like a swimming pool or something nearby that would have, you know, caused that kind of a reflection. I don't remember where I read that, but I know I read something about a swimming pool. And that studio was on the roof of a building and there was a rooftop pool because there's some other band has some stories about that place too. Okay. So then that would make sense where that light would come from. But, you know, I guess the sun, just the right angle. Right. Just hitting it just right. And so that's what they decided to call the song. I believe I've read that before. Once you started telling it, I was like, wait a minute. Or is that reference? What's that movie they made? No, that's not mentioned in 24-Hour Party People. You knew exactly what I was talking about. I love that movie. And I can't, wait till, we do, can't wait till we do the Manchester episode, because I'm going to be talking about that movie. That's, that's an amazing movie. Up next, we have Lost in a Place Again, Temptation. Too hot to say. Up, down, 
and if this was this was newly recorded for this, we should know. Correct. Because I actually can't stand the original version, but I love this one. No, I was going to say, you're right. This was record re-recorded specifically for the album. And this particular version, Trey, is now one of New Order's best-known recordings. Yep. Because it was on the Train Spotting soundtrack. What's in that other movie, too? But, uh, what's that movie with Juliet Lewis? Juliet Lewis, where she plays a, a mental, mentally disabled young lady. I know the one you're talking about, but I don't know what Remember it is. Remember the part where she and her boyfriend, are, he's also mentally disabled, or dancing to this at a wedding? One day in like 1993, I walked into the, my mom was in a room watching TV, and I walked in and heard this playing. I was like, the fuck? <laughs> Look, there's Juliette Lewis and a, somebody else dancing to it. And I was like, what in the world? IMDB to the rescue. The other sister? That's it. Oh, it's got Giovanni Ravisi. Yeah, yeah, I think he plays your boyfriend. They're supposed to have Down syndrome and they fall in love and something. I can't remember. I've only ever watched it lots. I'm kind of glad I missed that one. It's it's not a terrible movie. I don't know. All right, so back to Temptation. (laughs) Bernard Sumner said that this is a story about a long lost love. The original version, the one that you don't like, Trey, was the first New Order track to use a sequencer, which was a home-built powertrain that cost 100 pounds. How the hell did you home-build a sequencer? With a kit? I would uh, guess. Yeah, yeah, they were selling gear like that. Yeah, okay. You just said home-build. It makes me think of somebody like Reddit in there. What guys have made a sequencer? Well, then it wouldn't be a powertrain, would it? Shut up. <laughs> Stop mocking me. Okay. Um, okay, one more thing worth noting about Temptation. This song holds the record for the most frequently played live song in their catalog. Really? Yes. I would have thought that would have been True Faith. Nope. Ooh, interesting. Okay, yeah, I'll go yeah. along with that. You know, I don't know. that The female vocals in this I absolutely adore. I don't know if that's Jillian. It probably but is. There's... It's 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 really beautiful. This is another song I think that is really timeless. You know, it doesn't sound super dated to me. I think it still holds up in 2023. It, it just sounds like New Order to me. I don't know. <laughs> it's, okay. it's one of their signature songs, I think. It's anybody that's in the New Order, you know. All right. Well, speaking of signature songs, Trey, shall I move on to the next song? One of their best known songs and that is Blue Monday.
Oof, I'm tired of this song. I just don't like it. I still I, like you know, it. No, I, I don't, like if I play this, I'll skip it. I don't hate it, but it's just, it's gotten ruined by radio and going and, you know, you go in a club and th- th- this is the new world of song they play. The first time I ever heard this was in a radio ad for a dance club in the Chicago suburbs called Oliver's. And they would play this song and it was a long time before I realized that this was an actual song and this wasn't just part of a radio commercial. You know what I mean? Interesting. I, I would have first heard it when I bought the album. Okay. Then I know of. Well, so this one came out in, I want to say, 84. Isn't this the best-selling 12-inch single in British history or something? It, not just in British history. I think worldwide. Really? It is, the yes, the number one best-selling 12-inch single of all time. But the story behind that is it actually lost factory records yeah money. because because of the cover right the singles packaging was die cut the sleeve is made to resemble a five and a quarter inch floppy disk listeners of a certain age will remember what those were and because of all of the technique needed to create this they were actually losing money on every copy not a very good way to run a business. You would have thought they would have just done a limited press of the intricate one and put it out, not, you know. But that's not how Factory Records did everything. Hey, you got to look cool, you know. Yeah. 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 Go big or go home could have been the Factory Records motto. Yeah. So around the time that they recorded this, the band had purchased an Emulator 1 synth for 4,000 pounds. You beat me to it. Okay. Well, then I'll let you say it. Mike, you can, you, you seg into that. That's fine. Okay. It had a sampling time of only four seconds. And they also had a DMX drum machine that they used for the beat. But midway through their recording, the DMX drum machine dumped the entire sequence and they had to start over, which is very frustrating. Apparently, what we hear on this recording is not quite what they originally intended. The music synth parts actually ended up coming in later than they intended so you know how it starts off with the do 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 and and then you got the the synth coming in and i think that they had intended that to sync a little bit better but it ended up being a happy accident where yeah. it ended up working really well and sounding really cool and then they did some samples here that were definitely recognizable they included the beat from the song our love by donna summer there's a sample from the song Uranium by Kraftwerk, that kind of angelic choir. You know what I'm talking about? It's, in the song? I think that sound was actually included on the Hindu. It's listed on a number of sites, like who sampled, and a few other sites is actually a sample from that song, which would be very appropriate considering that Without Kraftwerk, there would be no New Order. Kraftwerk were really right. the synth pioneers, right? Do you understand how an emu worked? No, not at all. Do you want to clue me in? And it had a floppy drive on it. It didn't have any sound. Like, you go by a synthesizer, it's got factory presets and whatnot. Emus came with floppy bits. Okay. And you would load the sound into the keyboard. And, and, and you know, once you bought your emu, you got two, a couple, two or three discs with it. And then you could buy more. 
they called it their library of sounds. You could just keep buying them and you could load your disc in and pick the sound you wanted. But I, I think they ended up including that sound in one of their library sets they put out because so many people were using it. They just said, here, we'll make it easy for you. Okay, so so back to samples. So we've got Donna Summer. We've got Kraftwerk. The groove and the bass line are from the disco classic You Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester. And the guitar is a sample that... That's a sample from the Ennio Morricone theme from the Clint Eastwood film for a few dollars more. No shit. No shit. I can't believe... Cause I, okay, so I love spaghetti westerns, and I can't believe for nearly 40 years I have never noticed that. Wow. You know, the website whosample.com is really... I know. I've, I've, I've spent it nine hours pouring through it lots, you know, when you happen on yeah. something on the web like that. There it is. It sounds like new, I believe Peter Hook actually played that on a bass, and there's a note or two different in there, but yet, wow, I can't believe I've ever noticed that. Well, and if I'm not mistaken, all the basses actually run through a synth. I don't think that any of the basses actually... Most, m- more likely than not, yeah. So most, there's a, yeah. Out, it's called an outboard pro- effects processor. That's, you're you're going to open some cans of worms talking about this stuff. That these big rack mount things that you could put your guitar or your bass in and just completely, basically warp the sound of it. And that's, Peter was big on those. Well, New Order wasn't really big on crazy long life performances and they hated doing encores. So part of the reason that they wrote Blue Monday is that they wanted something that they could just plug in their instruments, have it play for eight minutes and however many seconds. And then just walk off the stage and, and not be bothered with it. Someone made a joke once that New Order could play a concert. None of them would actually have to actually check to touch their instruments if they so, so wanted. Well, I remember actually hearing that from a friend after I started to get into New Order in like 88, 89. And I had wanted to go see them in concert. And he told me, no, you don't. He said, because all they do is. Yeah, they're boring. All they do is plug in their instruments and stand around. Now. Uh-huh. I've seen them a couple times since, like in recent years, in the 21st century, they were not boring at all. And they did not just stand around. They've got more lively. I saw them in Atlanta in 89, and I was just like, really? Uh Come on, guys. It was a good show, and they sounded beautiful, but it was just some of the most boring concert I've ever been to in my life. Up next, we have Confusion. Oh, 
Lori loves this one. I'm, I'm, this isn't one of my favorite New Order songs, but we'll let her take this one. What makes you think I love it? Did you tell me last night? Okay, well, I, I had texted you uh, that I just can't believe that this is the same song that is in the movie Blade with Wesley Snipes. I had never seen that. Complete, oh, it's such a good movie. You call yourself a goth and you haven't seen Blade. It's fucking fantastic. But there is a scene that they made a basically a meat packing plant into an after hours dance club. Oh, I'll- There's like blood coming out of the sprinklers. But they're dancing to the remix of this song, and the remix sounds nothing like this. I mean, it's you know, almost, I, I've actually seen that part of the movie, and I didn't notice. It's almost unrecognizable. There's, if you listen very closely, you can hear in the movie that that chorus. You just can't believe me, but it's really kind of buried in the mix. But anyway, this is one of the two songs on Substance, in which American producer Arthur Baker shares uh-huh. a writing credit. Uh-huh. And the group spent two days in the studio with Baker producing two tracks, Confusion and then Thieves Like Us, which we're going to talk about next. Bernard Sumner later said, we didn't spend enough time on it. We were all sick and tired of New York when we were doing it, all just wanting to get it done and go home. Now, this version was re-recorded specifically for the album. I think that this is a lot better than the original version that Arthur Baker produced. It's unique because it has both Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner playing bass guitars in it. And at the very, very beginning, there's a female voice sampled that she's saying WWWRL. There's a lot of speculation as to what that means, but general consensus is it's probably a reference to the radio station WWRL in Harlem in New York. I was going to say this song always sounded to me like they were kind of had some hip-hop influences in there. Maybe it was their take on American, you know, the rap that was going on, like Africa Bombada and stuff like that. Hmm. That's an interesting take on it. I, you know, I, I definitely think <laughs> that it, it's, we're kind of moving through the catalog here, as we're moving through the CD, rather. Um... Their songs are definitely becoming a lot more upbeat, aren't they? I think, you know, they were a little bit darker the few, first few tracks because they were darker the first few years. And I think around this time, they really kind of started to get more upbeat and, I, I guess, poppy. Well, the gear got better, too. The synthesizer gear, we're up into, what, 84, 85 now. That's when the DX7 came out and all that stuff. And it, they had access to better gear. Think of how rudimentary, you know, their first album sounds compared to Power, corru- power Corruption, and Lies. Uh-huh. What's up with New Water and the Tongue Twister album finals? Good Lord. Anyways, think about it. I think Confusion aptly describes what the fans were feeling when they heard this because New Order really did take a turn. And I think a lot of their fans that had followed them since Joy Division were like, what the hell is this? Yeah, but you know, New Order took a turn with every album. They're one of those bands where they have their distinctive sound, Mm -hmm. but each album's a bit different than the one before it. And that's what makes them so good. I agree. I agree. All right, so we know you're not a fan of Confusion. Shall we move on to the second 
yes. Arthur Baker song? Yes, let's go. The second track that New Order wrote with Arthur Baker in these recording sessions is called Thieves Like Us. Let's listen. Man, I love, I love this one. Oh, it's fantastic. This is, this is a really, really good one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for this, most of the time, for our audience out there, most of the time I have to go back and listen to these albums. This, this one in Kick and Kiss Me, I didn't have to at all. The songs can come right up in my head. So, you know, again, the name doesn't have anything to do with the song. It was named after a 1974 film called Thieves Like Us, which was directed by Robert Altman. And speaking of films, an instrumental version of the song is featured in the 1986 movie Pretty in Pink. Doesn't look like it's even on the soundtrack. Right, right. This, no, it wasn't included on the It's in the movie for sure. Yeah. So it was Elgia, whatever it's called, Elegia. Yes, Elegia. So I think that this song is an example of their songwriting at their finest, especially Barney's lyrics. Now you live your life like a shadow in the pouring rain. Oh my God, what a beautiful line. He had gotten married around this time. Oh, had he? Yeah, so I'm always guessing this is written to whomever, whomever it was he was married. And Round and Round is actually about their divorce. Hello. Okay, so Round and Round is on the album Technique. Right, and then... Which we are definitely doing an album deep dive on when we get to... Oh, yeah, we have to do that one. He actually married one of... The, well, we'll save that for the episode. All right, anything else you want to say about Thieves Like Us? I, it's just such a great song. Who knows what it's actually about? Could be drugs, could be a woman. In some ways, those are kind of the same thing. It's about love, and it belongs <laughs> to everyone but us. Okay, guys, up next, we have one of my all-time favorite New Order songs. I should note, it has to be this song, but it's The Perfect Kiss.
I think this actually was probably the second video I ever saw about New Order as well. Because 120 minutes really started hyping them a lot. And this took off. And I remember seeing this one night. And that video was directed by Jonathan Demi, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. And this is another song where I have no earthly idea what in the world he's singing about. Nor do I, but I love some of the, <laughs> yeah. some of the lyrics of this. Okay. Pretending not to see his gun. Yeah. I said, let's go out and have some fun. Okay, Barney. There's some innuendos in there for sure. So, you know, you mentioned the longer version. I didn't realize, Trey, that the version on the CD is actually shorter than the version that is on the LP and the cassette. Yeah. And then, well, I guess you wouldn't notice that unless you had all three copies of the album. Right. So. Well, I, I guess that's for the same reason that, you know, we talked about last episode with Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Space Considerations. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have all fit onto one disc, so they edited, edited it down. Correct, yeah. I don't know that it necessarily lost anything, though. Because the, the cassette actually has a long version of the next song we're getting to instead of the four-minute version, which was included on the compact disc. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Because I had the cassette, and I know for a fact... I was about to say, remember, I had a special edition of the cassette. I had the two-pack. Uh, so you art... probably... Right. Okay. You probably had the full 12-inch version then. My cassette with the B-sides on it actually had more B-sides than you could get on the compact disc version, too. Oh, how interesting. With who? Well, anyway, I love some of the sounds that they sample for Perfect Kiss. There's that musical instrumental interlude where they've got the frogs they there's there's they've actually sampled like a pond of frogs it was a, probably something for the emu again okay well it works it's weird but it works well you ever notice that goat or whatever a sheep at the end mixed in with all the other racket there at the end of the song now, I don't remember it on Perfect Kiss I remember it on right or is it on it on so it's on technique it's on the first track on technique no it's in this too trust me you have is to it? listen to yeah you have to listen it's it's underneath a bunch of other stuff trust me it's there my girlfriend in high school used to always comment about that like who thought to put a goat or whatever that is in there all right i'm gonna have to go back and listen to it again probably not a farm animal it's probably a person and they just warped it uh, well if they got frogs maybe it yeah. is a goat so the next song up is probably my favorite track on the album, Trey. It is Subculture. You know, this one just goes so well with the song before. They just, I can't listen to one without the other. And the order oh. they're on the album, too. Oh, that's what you're talking about, that. Ah, yeah. I just thought yeah. it was like a person. I didn't think it was a goat. I thought it was a person going, ow. Well, we used to say it was a goat when I was, you oh. know. Oh, but yeah, it almost kind of blends from that sound effect right into the right, opening. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay.
Culture was originally recorded for the album Low Life. Right. And if you listen to the version on Low Life, it doesn't sound anything like this. I was going to say, this is from the 12-inch. Right. But it's not a 12-inch mix of the song. It's just a different mix of the song. Right, right, right. Okay, so <laughs> the original version, Barney's actually a little bit off-key. And it almost kind of reminds me of, like, a lot of, like, Violent Femmes or, you know, a lot of other music that was out at the time. But they brought in a producer named John Roby. And he remixed this as a 12-inch. He strengthened Barney's original vocals. He added a backing chorus. And he edited it. Why can't I say the word edited today? He edited it into a 12-inch version that was something like seven or eight minutes long. Mm -hmm. But it got cut down for substance. So this is an edited version of the 12-inch. And I absolutely love it. This is, yeah, as great. I said, this is this is my favorite track on the album. Anything you want to say about subculture? I think that about covers it for that one. Low Life is a, if you guys out there listening, if you've never heard Low Life, go get that album and listen to it. It's fantastic. We should have done that in '85. We can always go back. Didn't we discuss it and mix it for something else? We don't remember. Anyways. I, I'm sorry, I really don't. No, I it's really fine. Did, did you want to mention that the version that you had on your cassette was probably the full 12-inch or no? I would wager it was. You know, that, that thing, that, that cassette copy with the two tapes is very, it had different cover art and everything. You know, yeah, I'll be honest. I have never heard of that at all until you mentioned it in this episode. It might have been an import. Well, yeah, I imagine it probably would have been. All right, so Trey, you get to take the next one. We're on a shell shot. Which was included on the Pretty in Pink soundtrack that you could buy. Yeah, so apparently John Hughes contacted the band asking them for a new song mm -hmm. for Pretty in Pink. Mm -hmm. And so they rushed into the studio with John Roby to try to record something. And then I think they were a little bit pissed off that they didn't use the song in the scene that they had written it for. You know, they tried to write it to match the mood and pacing of a scene. And then it ended up not being used for that particular scene. General Shark. Yeah, no, this is a good one. It is. It's a very rare example of a New Order song that actually uses the song title in the chorus. Yeah, you know what? You're right. I didn't, can't believe I didn't notice that. You know, one of the things I like about this, now this is really an obscure 80s reference, Trey. There was an arcade game called Rastan. 
coming for that gang. Okay. Every time I hear the synths in this song, it reminds me of the game Rastan. There, there was something very similar sounding. It's not the same melody, but there was a similar sound to the, the game. I mean, so, so I guess I would say this sounds like a video game song to me. Well, how do you think they made the music for those games back then? Well, I know, I know. Okay, honey, look who you're talking to, Professor of Computer Science. Hello. I, never, I don't know. You've you've shocked me on a few computer things. I'm like, what? Well, I didn't know that. But I, to this day, I still when I hear that song, I think of that particular video game. So our listeners, go ahead. There's look it up on YouTube. There's people playing Rastan. Give it a listen. I'm curious to see if anybody else sees the similarity or if it's just all in my head. It may be all in my head. It, it's probably a profit five because they use this heavily to make music for video games so new order probably whipped out their profit five for the song not it they did about covers it from that one again good one's pretty and pink if you've never seen it too it's a great movie though i doubt anyone in our audience has never not seen that so i was like the last one right and i forgot you about how do you remember how I had to watch it before we, or Lord, I mean, after, you... was it before or after we did our John Hughes episode? We talked about this, Trey. I my, I was sheltered. My parents did not allow me to see any of these movies. Still, we it's talked on, about this. We could probably cut on the TV I right now. I saw, the... I saw it. I saw it. In preparation for our John Hughes episode, which was what? Episode 10? I, I saw I th- it. I think it's a charade. You weren't actually cool in the 80s. No, I never claimed to be cool in the eighties. I was, I was completely uncool. <laughs> Ask anybody who knew me. I will be the first to admit it. I wasn't really any different than I am now, but that could be a good thing. But uh... yes, it depends upon who you are and your purpose. Per- Why are we fumbling over our words today? Your purpose. Per- oh Lord! I, I was going to say, out. are you? Are- are you are you like Simon Pegg's character in World's End, where I'm trying you're to still reliving the same day from high much. school? Yeah, Groundhog okay. Day. And I, pe- I peaked okay. in '88. Huh. I'm sorry. For me, the best would, is yet to come. But I wouldn't mind being stuck in 1988. It was a fun year. Mm, not for me. Well, you were a I bit mean, younger look, than me then too. I was 18. Yeah. You know. I mean, let's be honest, the 80s really kind of sucked. Oh, wait, now they were, aren't you out of your mind? No, no. I mean... Well, again, you went through them younger. Reaganomics, Cold War. Yeah, but people were worried about all that, Matt, man. It was, it was, you know... Yeah, they were. Yeah, I guess I, I was... was I was acutely aware of it. I mean, I knew about all that stuff, but I wasn't freaking out thinking I was going to get new. Yeah, well, I'm more worried about that now than I was back then. Maybe that's why I ended up hospitalized in '88. I mean, I knew about all that stuff. I just didn't do it. I, all I wanted to do was hang out with my girlfriend and listen to music. I didn't. I mean, you know, we didn't have the internet, so we weren't getting this shit put in our face twenty four seven like we are now. Okay. On that note, our next track is State of the Nation.
And this was quite a dud, if you ask me. I don't know if I'd call it a dud. I mean, I get where you're coming from. This is actually, I think, unusual because it's a protest song. Uh-huh. Supposedly, this is actually about poverty in the UK, right? The state of the nation that's causing death inflation. Yeah, that was what we were just talking about. It kind of related to that, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I could say I, I never do that, but once you said it, I can see it. That's when they were the, everybody being on the dole and all that. Yeah, yeah. Thatcher and yeah. Yeah. This is another New Order song. We have two in a row here, which is very unusual, where they actually are mentioning the title in the chorus. I don't know what's going on here. It's uh, unusual. Trey, I really appreciate the lyrics to this song. I mean, from my home, I traveled far. I drove in my stolen car. When it broke down, I kissed the ground because I don't kiss when you're around. I love that line. I don't know what it has to do with poverty and inflation. That's a great fucking line. (laughs) Um, I think the strongest thing about this song, though, is Peter Hook's bass. And I may have mentioned this in another episode, but the idea of bass is a lead instrument. Very, very unusual. A lot of these songs we have, Peter's bass being, you know, front and center, you know, like pulling the melody along. Whereas I think most of the time we're accustomed to bass being part of the rhythm section. I, it's one of the big attractions to the band for me. Actually, that was such a brilliant idea. Of course, there's a lot of other bands that want them to do it. Ned's Atomic Dustbin, for example. Oh, hell yes. And Primus. Uh-huh. Yeah. Even, there's even a few Cure songs that are like plain song. That, that, that's a bass. Most people think that's the guitar. It's a bass. You know, they're at the beginning, the downhill. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I absolutely love about New Order. And that's it, a very distinctive New Order trademark. You hear that Peter Hook bass? Great name for a bassist. Peter Hook. And they called him Hooky. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say this now. They're, they're nothing without Peter Hook. He is sorely missing in the band. It's just his sound. Nobody can, nobody else can do that. They need to get in a rhythm and talk it out and do a last tour of Peter. They really do. Yeah, might I know end pe- in some physical Oop. violence. That might end in some physical then maybe violence. Maybe that's what needs to happen. <laughs> Kick the shit out of each other? Yeah, why not? All right, all right. Up next, we have Bizarre Love Train going.
I have a little funny story about this song. My girlfriend in high school, when we got this album, she'd always bust out laughing at the intro to this version of the song. She thought it sounded like the intro to the six o'clock news or something, you know, that dun, 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 dun. I was like, you know, you're kind of right. Sounded like some of the music CNN would play in the background or something back then. Yeah, with the the weird sample intro. I guess you. I guess. I guess you had to be there. I don't know. Yeah. This song was featured in a, a movie that I love called Married to the Mob. Oh, the soundtrack of that movie is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. You know yes. it. Yes. I well, I know the soundtrack. I've actually not seen the movie. Don't yell at me. I've not seen the movie, but the soundtrack is phenomenal tom tom club uh ziggy marley q lazarus and this one he and i actually went and saw it based on the music that was in the trailer yeah mm-hmm. so this version is actually a chef pettibone remix mm-hmm. there, i mean i think we've talked about this before in another episode there's actually several different versions of this song out there yeah this every new order song has 99 different mixes of it that's how it is yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing I don't care about this particular mix is I think Peter Hook's bass is buried down in the mix. And I like it better when it's a little bit more at the forefront. I like the version on Brotherhood best. Okay. And my favorite is actually the one on the Married to the Mob soundtrack, but Brotherhood's a close second. They're different. I didn't know. That's different. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're, they're, they're different. I'll have to check that out later. Okay. Now, Peter Hook's bass is actually looped through a Fairlight CMI for this. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know what a Fairlight CMI is? It's a... It's come up before. We've talked it's about sequencer? it. No. So it's a big-ass computer-driven... Big. We've talked about it before, Turkey. One of our keep favorite... Track. I can't keep track of all of these different models. Are you kidding me? One of our very <laughs> favorite people... You've seen one. One of our very favorite people used one. Nick Rhodes? Yes. Uh-huh. You know in the arena videos when he's on the screen with the light fin? That's a pair light in your mind. Remember in the, in the, in the uh, arena videos, you know, the live stuff, and you see Nick me look yeah. with the light pen on the little computer screen? That's a pair light in your mind. Oh, okay. All right. Maybe eventually I'll remember that. I, you know, I remember the things that are important to me. I'm sorry. It's just that you know, is important to me. And it is too. When sorry. I come up there, I'm going to get a t-shirt with all of those on it. Where? With a Fairlight CMI? Yeah, and a DX7 on the back. All right. So listeners, what you don't know is Trey is actually going to be coming to Chicago in September for Riot Fest. And he and I are probably going to meet for the first time in person after having known each other online for years. But I jokingly said I wanted him to get a t-shirt that said Synth Boy. Now, it sounds like instead you're talking about a Fairlight CMI. <laughs> so that worked for me. I'm going to wear something comical, just, you know. If you happen to be at Riot Fest and you see a tall goth man wearing a Fairlight CMI shirt, come up and say hello. It's Trey. I'm actually, I got, well, I'm doting over my outfit for that day. That's gonna be a hard. That's gonna be a hard decision because there's gonna be some single golf chicks there. Yeah, there will. Oh, be. I'm, I'm gonna will be, be on the. I am gonna be on the prowl. All right, <laughs> listeners, you heard it here first. Single goth ladies, if you're going to be at Riot Fest, please hit us up. <laughs> yeah, please do. All of a sudden, we turned into a dating uh, dating podcast. Yes, leave that in there. Please do. If you're out there, All contact right. me. We can we can make a date of the day. 
I might even buy your ticket for you. That's what the hell do you think I was coming out there for? Besides to see the cure. I assumed it was to see the cure, but... There's there's no goth woman down here in Georgia. That's not going to happen here. Okay. If you see me going to any other city anytime soon, that's what I'm up to. Okay, good to know. And uh, <laughs> now let's go back to Bizarre Love Triangle for a second, Trey. Well, it's fitting. We're having this conversation on that song, kind of. Love oh, triangle. Is there going to be, no, there gonna there's be a no love triangle? triangle but that... bizarre, bizarre love kind of fits it. All right. The last thing I want to note about Bizarre Love Triangle, Trey, is in 2004, Rolling Stone ranked this song number 2004 on the 500 greatest songs of all time list. Do you actually read those? Yeah. I've never said I always want to see who's in there. There's always somebody I mean, like you telling me, hey, that's all it was on this. I've never read one. Right. Well, then you know what? You stick to your synths and your fair light, and I will stick to our Rolling Stone top 500 list. I still How's can't that? believe you didn't know a fair light. I still can't believe you didn't know the Rolling Stones top. No, just shut up. What I do one every <laughs> week. <laughs> I'm like, type. Okay, top, okay. Top 500 songs with fiddles in them. I'm like, really? Who thinks of this shit? All right. We just keep, keep ripping on me, though. Keep ripping on me, and we'll see how. You gonna cut the dating part out? I'll get you. <laughs> All right. The last song on Substance was the only new track for this album, and that was called True Faith. This was released as a single on July 20th, 1987, produced and co-written by Stephen Haig. And this is very clearly a song about heroin, although Bernard Sumner is adamant that he never did heroin and he just imagined what it must be like. There's a line in the song, Trey, when I was a very small boy, very small boys talked to me. Now that we've grown up together, they're afraid of what they see. Now, the line was originally written, now they're taking drugs with me. But Stephen Haig made him change it because he was afraid that they wouldn't get any airplay if they left that line in. And I think that was a good call. Yeah. This actually became their highest charting hit stateside until 1993's song Regret. And it peaked at number 32 on the Billboard chart. You know, the video for this song just, I can still remember the, my first time seeing it just being like, wow. I remember my first time seeing it too, and I thought it was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I'm surprised you've seen it. 
to this day, I find it unwatchable. The people with the fat suits and they're like bouncing into each other and stuff. What kind of arty farty shit is this? It made me think of something Lori Anderson would do. That type of stuff. It just it was just so there was nothing else like it at the time. Okay. You know, every other video was the band performing or something, and this was just so out of freaking left field. When it, it had the woman, uh, what do you call it, sign language in the lyrics. And he, like you said, the people in a fat suit and the two dudes slapping each other. And then the brief, brief instant at the end, you see the band. I felt like I was watching, like, Punch and Judy. I, I loved it. I was like, this. It, 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 I, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. Okay. When did you did you see it back then or later in life? Um, no, actually, I think I the first time I saw it would have been maybe about eighty nine. See, eighty nine well, or ninety. Bit younger than me again. Maybe it just I don't know. I, it just caught me. I was like, well, holy wow! It didn't make any sense, and that's I think that's what they meant for it to be. It wasn't supposed to make any sense. It was, you know, mm-hmm. if there were a lot of bands from this time period that. I consider video bands, right? In excess, Duran Duran. New Order is definitely not one of them. Exactly. New Order is not known for their videos for a reason. Their videos are just boring. New Order was sort of the antithesis of sort of the whole rock star. They didn't, they were trying to not be that. They didn't, I don't know. Okay. Heck, for the longest time, I had no idea what they were. I think until sometime in 88, they got low life and they had their pictures on the cover. But who knew, who knew what they looked like? Yeah, they, they've never been the stereotypical rock stars, you know, in the limelight. I imagine that any of them could walk down the street and nobody would stop them. I would know who they are now, but back then, they all four of them could have come up and started talking to me. I'd have been like, who the hell are these British people? Right. You know? <laughs> right. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of Substance. Goodbye from me. Good night, everybody. And remember, single goth ladies, if you're going to be at Riot <laughs> Fest. You could just go to our Facebook page. If you're going to be at Riot Fest and you would like to meet up with Trey, please go to our Facebook page, Accelerated Culture Podcast. On July 26, 2023, we lost an amazing talent. Singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor died suddenly at the age of 56. Because her music was such an integral part of the 80s, Trey and I would like to dedicate an entire episode to her. So please tune in on August 12th for our special episode dedicated to Sinead O'Connor.